0: we continue our study through the book of John, a series that that we've entitled Believe, because that's what John says is the purpose of his book. John said, I'm writing these things to you so that you might believe and, and know Jesus Christ and have life in his name. And we come to the end of a text, a section that we've been in for some weeks now, where Jesus is engaged in a debate with the religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem, and things are about to get hostile in John chapter eight. You know, I, I was reading, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but at Harvard University, the Harvard Ivy League, the largest Christian group on campus is a group called the Harbage College Faith in Action. It's an evangelical group uh, ministering there at Harvard. And recently, they've been undergoing a, a, an ongoing battle, sort of, so to speak, with the administration there. It seems the administration at Harvard has put them on probation, um, has threatened to shut them down for, and, I, and I'm quoting here actions grossly inconsistent with the expectations clearly outlined by school policy. And their crime is that they ask their officers to. Live in accordance with biblical standards of sexuality. That sex and relationships are to be between heterosexual men and women, sex confined to the, as a gift in the context of marriage. They had to dismiss one of their officers who was not abiding by living according to those standards. And so Harvard penalized them, threatened to shut them down. Now that's an ongoing debate and issue, but to be clear, let's understand this in the United States of America, Harvard is disciplining a Christian group because they are what? Christian. It's amazing, okay? And and so there's an author, some of you may be aware of him, Rod Dreher. He's a writer, thinker, Orthodox Christian, a really good guy. He takes a lay of the cultural land and the landscape in our country and, and sees situations like this and observes that Christian liberties are being eroded and and it just seems that the church is sort of being squeezed in from all sides. And he, he's penned a, penned a really provocative book called The Benedict Option. And, and The Benedict Option is really a call for the church to pursue what he kind of calls a 21st century vision of monasticism. In other words, if the church wants to remain relevant, if the church wants to preserve its cultural identity, if the church doesn't want to get squeezed we need to, as a, as, a, as a church body and family, pull back. We need to separate ourselves from this, this culture. We need to be separate. We need to think about um, how we protect and preserve the traditions and the truths that God has given us. Now, let, let, let's say something before we say something against that, okay? As a parent, there is a lot of things about that that's really appealing to me. Okay. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that are really appealing. When I think about the pervasiveness of sexuality, of technology, um, when I think about sort of the culture our, our children are growing up in, that we're growing up in, our grandkids are growing up in, there's something about this idea of, quote-unquote, the Benedict option that sounds, that sounds tempting, that sounds inviting, that sounds safe. The issue though, is this doesn't seem to be the pattern of the New Testament church. And it's certainly not the pattern of Jesus in his ministry. See, as as we come to the end of John chapter 8, and Jesus is culminating this great debate with the religious leaders, what Jesus says and how he responds to the opposition that faces him over the claims of who he is, we're going to find out they, they hate him, They call him names. They want to kill him. How Jesus responds, how Jesus moves forward in mission, I think gives us a framework for how we should think about, how we should engage a culture that's clearly increasingly hostile to the absolute claims of Jesus. That's where we're going to go this morning, and I provocatively titled it, hopefully, Provocatively, will they throw stones at you too? Okay, I'm going to wait till the end until I say, I hope so. But we'll get there. Okay, so why don't you stand up? We're going to read God's word together. John chapter 8, 48 through 59. Jesus brings this great debate to a close. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. "'But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. "'Yet I do not seek my own glory. "'There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death.' "'The Jews said to him, "'Now we know that you have a demon. "'Abraham died, as did the prophets, "'yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, "'he will never taste death. "'Are you greater than our father Abraham who died?' "'And the prophets died.' Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, we as your people want to walk faithfully in these times that we find ourselves in. Lord, we, we want to, to do what you've called us to do, to be who you've called us to be, to say the things that we want to say. Lord, we don't want to cause offense by our own lack of wisdom or stupidity or ignorance or our own offensiveness. But Lord, where offense must be given around the exclusive claims of Christ, Lord, I do pray for us, Lord, that we would have courage. Lord, that we would have conviction. That we would follow Jesus into the places he has called us to go. Lord, that's our heart. Lord, we just don't want to be another little church on the northeast side of town. Provincial, settled in its ways, serving its own needs. Lord, there's a dying world before us. And we need your grace. We want, we need your grace to not see peop, other people as the enemies, but to see them as the, as the mission field, as the people that you are calling to yourself, Lord. So line our hearts with that truth, as hard as it may be. But please do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. Three, three sections um, in this debate. We're going to look, first of all, at Christ's claim. Then we're going to look at the people's response, and finally, your faith, my faith. So that's where we're going. Christ's claim, the people's response, your faith. Uh, a number of years ago, Susan and I um, took a trip to, to New York City, and we had never been before, and we were thumbing through one of those tour books. Remember those things that you picked up at AAA? That was, okay. Okay. And, and we were thumbing through and, and, and looking for places to eat and didn't know a thing about, about New York hardly. And we, we ran across this description for a restaurant called Babo's. I know, it's, don't, I didn't name it. Anyway, it was, a, it was a restaurant near Washington Square, Italian restaurant. And as we, as we went in and get, got seated, and we were with some friends, and it quickly became apparent that this was the best and most expensive food we had ever eaten, okay? And I do mean that, the most expensive, but it was the best. And so we began to query the, the, the waiter. Now who's the chef? And tell us, wh- where does this come from? And who is this person? And he was kind of vague, you know, just kind of, oh, he was trained in Italy, and he's kind of an up-and-comer. He's a, he's a pretty gifted guy. He owns, a, he owns a few restaurants here in town. Now, we knew he was somebody. We just weren't exactly sure who, well, the next day we were out shopping and one of us picked up a cookbook and on the, on the back sleeve it had a, had a whole write-up. It was a Mario Batali cookbook. You know, Mario Batali from Iron Chef, Malto with Mario, The Chew. I mean, he's kind of like America's best known known chef. And it talks about all the things that he's done and it said, and the owner of where? Babos. And we're like, oh, we're really dumbo." Okay, but nonetheless, we were at Mario Batali's restaurant and didn't know it and we just kind of had this experience of like oh that's who it was okay it makes complete and total sense now this wasn't just a cook this was the cook right this was the cook now the same thing kind of is happening in this passage remember jesus is in jerusalem he's teaching at the temple and the, and the crowds are are Kind of confused, kind of enthralled, kind of engaged, but kind of offended all at the same time. They're trying to figure out who this guy is. They're not sure exactly who Jesus, who he is, where he's come from. They, they knew he was somebody, right? They, they some thought he was the Christ. Some thought he was a prophet. Some people said he came from God. Other people said, no, no, he's from the bowels of Satan himself. But after this exchange, there can be no doubt who he is, who he claims to be. There's two things that Jesus says in this passage we're going to look at first that sort of seal the deal. In other words, you've been wondering who I am. Um, I've kind of been putting it right up in your face. I've been telling you over and over, but if you need me to make it as explicit as explicit can be, here you go. And look at verse 56. First of all, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. No, no, if you're a Jew, you know that Father Abraham, um, called out of the, the, the Mideast, brought to the promised land, it was promised that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Through the seed of Abraham would come the seed of the Messiah who would save the world. But even more specifically, think about Genesis 18 for a second. Abraham has one and one son only, Isaac, and God asks him to what? To sacrifice him. And Abraham is put in this quandary of, 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 what do, of what do I do and what's going to happen to the seed and the promise. But as he gets up to the hill on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, what does Abraham find in the thicket there? A ram. And then he says, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. And so, so, so Jews immediately knew, that this, this is not just about a lamb. They're, they're, God is pointing us forward to some kind of permanent sacrifice that he will provide. It's interesting that Isaac's name literally means laughter. And, and so this whole idea that, that Isaac embodies laughter and rejoicing and is the seed of, of Abraham puts particular prominence and meaning when Jesus says what Abraham was really looking forward to was me. And as we'll see in a minute, the way they responded, they, they knew something was very different about this claim that Jesus was making. But 58 is where he pushes it over the edge. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now understand something. If Jesus wanted to simply say that he had existed before Abraham or that he was as prominent as Abraham or that he was some sort of supernatural being who preceded Abraham, that would have been scandalous, no doubt. But he could have just said, if that's what he wanted to communicate, before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I was. I was there. But that's not what he says. He says, before Abraham was, I Am, literally, Ego me? every Jew knew their Old Testament, knew the story of Moses and the burning bush, would have immediately placed this in its proper context, Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. See, the central claim of Christ in this passage is that he is none other than Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament come in human flesh. Now, now, it's easy for us 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later to sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that one before, Pastor Paul. Thank you. Move, move, let's move along. We, we need to park it there just for a second, Four Oaks, and realize the implication of what Jesus is claiming here and, and the way that this message falls on a postmodern relativistic world that we live in, and it fell on theirs as well. You see, what sets Jesus apart... From his Old Testament predecessors is not just a difference in degrees. In other words, got a prophet and a prophet and a prophet, and now you've got a great prophet. It's it's not a difference of degrees, it's a qualitative difference. Jesus is an entirely other being, entity, life entirely. So you need to understand something. When When we claim as believers and we affirm that Jesus is the great I am, that he has come from the Father, that there is no other way to salvation. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John's going to tell us in John 14. No one comes to the Father but by me. We're not simply presenting Jesus as as another degree, another path, another prominent figure on on the way to to actualization or spirituality. No, no, there's a significant qualitative difference. What we're saying, what Jesus is saying is I am am God incarnate. I'm God incarnate. I'm not, I don't, I don't appear to be God. I'm not kind of like God. I'm not, I'm not similar to God. I am God. This is no small thing that Jesus is saying. This is no small thing that we are confessing. So folks, don't take it lightly. Don't take it flippantly. Don't be surprised when it elicits all sorts of reaction and response. You see, as as Orthodox Christians, we are saying that Jesus was not merely a good man, a prophet, a teacher, or inspiring figure, although he is all those things in various ways. We're saying that this is God, he has come in flesh, he is incarnate and and folks we have to understand that will it should invoke some kind of response rightly understood it's not possible to remain indifferent or unaffected by this if you remain indifferent or unaffected by this you haven't truly wrestled with what jesus is saying here but the people the crowds sure did Let's look at their response. Go to verse 48. As the debate sort of heats up and comes to this climactic conclusion, verse 48, they, they, they re- resort to some name calling. They say, are we right in saying you're a demon? Are we right in saying that, that you're a Samaritan? Now, calling someone a Samaritan and a demon, those are about the two worst things that you could do or say to someone if you were Jewish. Calling someone a Samaritan was our equivalent of like a racial slur. Because Samaritans were despised. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered lower than the low. The Gentiles were to be preferred to Samaritans. They said, you're a Samaritan. You have questionable lineage. We, We we, you've come from the wrong side of the, of the track. It's like calling, pardon my French, calling someone an S-O-B. That's the connotation it has in this particular culture. They add a little feel to the fire and they also say, but, and, and by the way, you probably even have a demon. Now, if you're a Jew from the first pages of Scripture, who is the arch enemy of the people of God? Who do we see in Genesis 3? The serpent who is crafty Satan appears through him. And so these these are these are the the two most possibly worst things anyone could call anyone else in this particular context. Imagine for yourself what those two things, if someone were to say them to you, how you would respond. See, the flow of of this whole thing is what happens. It's the natural progression of what happens in every conflict, in every debate. And let me explain. See, you can look at any sort of interaction or debate, whether it's between nations in wars or people fighting or people arguing. There's a natural progression that goes something like this. First, there's an intellectual reasoning. Hey, we can come together. We can, we can talk. We can have reasoned dialogue. We can engage one another. We can exchange ideas. But what oftentimes happens as you sort of go tit for tat and back and forth with someone? The emotions start to rise, right? You get your your feelings hurt. You, You don't feel like you're being heard. You feel personally offended. You raise your voice. They raise their voice, which inevitably leads to this third thing, and it's what's happened in this debate. There's name calling, right? Insults derogatory statements, inflammatory statements, and fourth, what is inevitably the fourth stage of every unchecked, unhindered conflict. Now, you know, I have two, two nephews, Alex and Liam, and they love nothing better than to beat the crud out of each other, okay? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty awesome thing. And why beat the crud out of each other? What I mean is Liam, who's the youngest, who's three— Alex is five. Liam beats the crud out of his older brother, and the older brother just takes it for some reason. We don't, we don't know why. It's something psychological, I'm sure. And what's interesting about kids is that they just go through this progression quicker, don't they? <laughs> it's, it's, it's. That's mine. No, it's not. You're dumb. I hit you. Okay, it kind of goes, <laughs> goes in that rhythm. And that's what's just happened here. It just takes a little longer for us as adults to get there. See, it says that after this name-calling, they, they picked up stones. It was clear their intention was to toss Jesus off the roof of... I mean, th- this isn't like to play catch. Do you get that? <laughs> okay. the, 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 this, the, the temple is undoubtedly still under construction. It, had, it was for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You've been to Israel, you know this. You're, you're high on a temple mount. And the customary thing would have been to to take someone and to push them off a cliff or push them off the top of the temple mount and to take stones and hit them on the way down and go down to the bottom and throw some more stones at them until they're dead. And this was the the punishment, if we read Deuteronomy 13, this was the punishment for any sort of instance of blasphemy. Anyone who who used the Lord's name in vain, anyone who, who said something that attracted from the honor and glory of God, someone who made a claim about themselves that was reserved for God and God alone. However, nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament does it call for this. See, this is vigilante justice. There was no court, there was no trial, there was no, there was no proper religious authorities present. And it was all just a measure to show you and I how much they hated and despised what Jesus was saying. They would rather commit murder than to have this lingering claim of truth sort of wafting in the air. And you see their outright contempt and disdain. Verse 33, who do you make yourself out to be? You can just hear the scorn. Verse 57, you've seen Abraham? Oh, Jesus, you have, you've, lost, you've lost your mind. Who do you think you are? What, what has gotten into you? You've lost your mind. Put all those vernaculars in there that you can think of that we would say. But this tr- it, it's clear their anger has turned to murderous kinds of rage. And you've heard me say this before. If you notice, we're, as a culture, increasingly losing our capacity to dialogue and debate. Now, this is not to make a political statement about gun control one way or the other. We can You can take me to lunch and I'll give you my opinions of those things, okay? But it's got to be a good lunch, okay? a really, really nice lunch. But you see the CNN town hall meeting a week or two ago and some Florida lawmakers were involved, and there was others, and it, it wasn't a town hall, okay? It was, it was a feeding frenzy for snuffing out one viewpoint in favor of another. You see this across college campuses all the time. When, when, when debate becomes untethered from the truth, things get physical, Things get violent. You have to have things like safe zones. There's no capacity for engagement. John Piper had this to say, no, think about this. John Piper said this 12 years ago. He says, it is extremely unpopular today to take a strong stand on anything except tolerance. If you commend a truth with confidence and make a case for it on the basis of objective evidences and call on people with urgency to change their minds and believe it. That's what we're doing this morning, by the way. Do you understand that? We're making a case. We're presenting it from Scripture. I'm calling you to consider it. I'm, calling, I'm asking you to be urgent about it. I'm asking you to think about it, believe it, change your mind as necessary. But today, you will be viewed by the average American as arrogant <clears throat> and even dangerous. Here, 12 years later, Dangerous is very much the word that's used to describe Christian ethics. It's hateful. It's violent. It's oppressive. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? We're going to pivot in a direction that maybe some of us don't immediately consider. We talk about your faith, my faith, the church's faith. How do we respond? What are we supposed to do with this? What is this text calling us to do? And let me say something to provoke us, okay, just right off the bat. The point of this message, the point of this text is not for us to bemoan the deteriorating cultural conditions of the West or even of our country. That, that's not the point. Because guess what? The world is going to world. The world is going to be the world. See, the book of Acts, we see this amazing tension that's always happening. That on one hand, there is great opposition to the church, like we see here. But on the other hand, there can be great favor towards the church. But rarely do you see neutrality. Rarely do you see some sort of passive response to the claims of Christianity. There's never indifference. There's never apathy. You see this in the ministry of Jesus as well. People either want to follow him to the death or they want to kill him because they understand the implications of what he's saying. Folks, if the way we are living and engaging And talking does not elicit some sort of response. Some sort of reaction. And I don't mean going out of your way to try to offend people over this issue or that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about walking out your Christianity in faithfulness. I'm talking about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If it's not evoking some sort of response wherever you are, there's probably a good opportunity that you are not giving someone anything to respond to. Somewhere along the way, who Christ is, his exclusive claims, his, his call to repent, his call to, to faith has somehow become blocked or muted. And we end up living provincial lives that are just sort of meh. Where Jesus says, you're neither hot or cold. I just want to kind of spit you out of my mouth. What does the claims of Christ, your Christian faith, your testimony, what does it elicit from the people around you? This can be hard. It's going to be hard to consider. Hard to think about. But think about this. I want you to consider this text from Matthew 10 be a great passage for another time. But this is what Jesus says to his disciples is, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, get that? What's happening in this text? how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. I don't know about you parents, but I can just confess this. That was not the devotional at the dinner table the past week or the past month. or I'm trying to even be honest, the past year. Are these the things that we're reminding each other of? telling each other, preaching to each other, encouraging each other. But Jesus says, have no fear. Why no fear? Why no fear? Two things Jesus points us to in this text. Look at verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what's interesting, the word see can also be translated tasted, okay? One who obeys my word, he will never taste death. Um, this week, a number of, of uh, women folk came over to the Gilbert house um, and Jack and I were exiled to the, to the back bedroom where we watched uh, Born Identity movies, and um, it was actually quite, kind of fun. But the women were serving fondue, and I don't mean like just little, I mean, we're talking like, this was like melting pot up in that place. And so, so Jack and I, every 10 minutes or so, as the smells kind of wafted in, we'd go take a peek, you know, through the blinds, and we would see the women gorging themselves. Anyway, they were, they were, they were eating, they were, they were enjoying, and we were getting snippets of it. We were hearing this conversation and that conversation, and we were seeing people enjoy the food, but we, we didn't have a taste of it, right? We had to wait till the women were meeting down in the, down in the yard, and we snuck out the side door and consumed our 3,000 calories worth of, of beer cheese. It was, it was unbelievable. It was amazing. We had to taste in order to experience. So what does Jesus mean when he says that you won't taste death? Because it sure looks like Jesus dies. It sure looks like I'm going to die. It sure looks like you're going to die. And it may be over the faith. It may be over the claims of Christ. I don't know. What Jesus means this is that death for the believer is not your settled state. It won't even be a blip on the radar in the context of eternity. It's, if we truly knew what heaven would be like and being with the Lord was like, you would not be able to keep us here. This is why Paul, when when Paul was shown the vision of the third heaven and he was like, I don't want to go back, Lord, because this is life. This is truly life. Death, physical death, is like one grain of sand in the eternity of seashores, you won't even remember it. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The second thing he says, look at verse 59. It says that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if that was supernatural. We don't know if... He snuck away. We don't know if his disciples kind of formed a posse around him. We, we, don't, we don't know. But the, but the actual translation is not Jesus hid himself. It was actually, the actual translation is, is this. It says that Jesus was hidden from them. Jesus was hidden. In other words, God hid him. Because, as we've seen in John, his hour had not yet come. Before, lest we think that Jesus is running away and that he's shirking away from the, his own claims. No, no. Understand, Jesus comes back. You realize this, right? Jesus comes back. If someone were to pick up rocks and throw them at you, would you return to the scene of the crime? The idea, I think, that John's trying to communicate to us here is that Jesus' life and ministry were completely in the hands of God. He was in control from start to finish, and it was not Jesus' hour. And folks, we can move forward in mission. We can move forward in boldness. We can move forward in grace. We can move forward with the exclusive claims of Christ, knowing, number one, we will never see death. And number two, that our life is fully and completely always under his sovereign care and control. And the reason this is possible is because the next time Jesus returns to Jerusalem is six months later. In this time, Jesus doesn't leave. This time, Jesus goes to the cross This time, for the joy set before him, for your salvation, for my salvation, Jesus marches directly to the cross, suffers the most horrific of deaths so that you and I would not have to see spiritual death. Because that is a message that on one hand can stir great anxiety. It can provoke great angst. It can stir up anger. It can stir up contempt. But at the same time, it is the only message that will bring hope. It is the only message that will save. It is the only message that will give us life and that will give life to the people around us. And so far, far from, from God calling us to sort of a a monasticism, as tempting as it is, as safe as it feels, as comforting as it might be. He says, follow me, because I go. And as I've gone out as a sheep among the wolves, I go out, you go out as a sheep among the wolves. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant his master. If they call, if they say mean things about me, they're going to say mean things about you and be comforted when that happens for Oaks because it means you belong to him. It means that you're a part of his family. Because coming up Easter here in about, about a month, we have a unique opportunity where people will visit church and they may not visit a church at any other time of the year except that one, that one particular time and one of the things that i'm going to be speaking on that morning is i'm going to be drawing some lessons from john 8 when john talks about being free in christ and how when you will know the truth the truth will set you free and we're going to hear testimonies and stories of people who've been in bondage to this thing or that thing that that particular addiction or that or that food or that fame or that power or that status or that sin And how Jesus has freed them from that. But I think there is a real felt need culturally when it comes to the fear of death. You know, we we will do almost anything to live in denial of it. There's There's an abject anxiety around our perishable bodies. And so much of our search for hope, our search for meaning is all tied up I think in that fear, who, who would God bring to your mind right now to say, this is someone I know who desperately needs that message of hope, that desperately needs that message of being free in Christ, who desperately needs to not experience or taste the second death. Be praying for that person, for Oaks. Be thinking about who you invite.